Welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I am Ross. And I am Gordon. Hey, Gordon. I see from the Camera Club forum that you've been out making images. Anything of note? Mm, some bird images that I was pleased with. As always, uh, to get them to be what I want, I have to spend some time in Lightroom Classic. Well, I suspect that's the case for most of us. Despite doing good work in camera, which we always try to do, there's always something that we want to do. And that's particularly true for shooting in raw format. Well, ever since I have known you, and before I had any idea what raw was, other than a steak, that is, I have heard you sing the praises of raw, and since I am opposed to throwing away over 70% of the data of my image, just as a matter of course, raw is my way to go. Well, myself as well. So I thought we might take a bit of time to provide some guidance on one potential editing workflow that folks who are uncertain might consider adopting. Well, I'm certainly glad to hear that, since I have to admit, I spend a lot of time ruminating. Ooh, ruminating. Ruminating. About workflow. And I think that others do as well. That's a pretty common question, but speaking of addressing Lightroom Classic specifically, I understand that the order in which adjustments are made is entirely up to the user. Is that correct? Absolutely. Lightroom Classic doesn't care. But a user might, particularly if there is a large number of edits that they want to accomplish. And where do we start with that? I'm going to forgo our usual Julie Andrews-related joke <laughs> about starting at the very beginning. But unless I'm doing a massive shoot, I do start in the library module. And I use it for the very practical purpose of quickly culling out anything that I won't be keeping. And how I define that which I will not be keeping, it means anything that I don't think is worth my time to edit. And I, and I should mention that Lightroom, and I am sure that other programs, is very efficient at culling. But I have read that you should never throw away images because storage is cheap and you might want to use them later. I think that's a personal decision. The library module in Lightroom Classic is indeed excellent for culling. And the reason I do it there is, for me, images that I don't want to keep are like socks, single socks, that I might find in the drawer. I'm not going to use them now. Oh, they're excellent that I will have forgotten about them in short order, and I just don't need the clutter. I don't find myself going back saying, hmm, I wonder if there's something truly crappy that I shot eight <laughs> years ago that I really want to work on. So when I get to the develop module, I don't want to wade through a ton of stuff that I've already decided is junk. Just throw it away and be done with it. If you don't like it, nobody else is going to care. That, too, is something I have heard you say often enough. Keep the best, dump the rest. But for their own reasons, not everyone will follow that practice. Once you have culled your images, where do you go with that then? Well, whether folks call or not is entirely up to them. I like my first module in the develop module 
be set to be lens corrections. One of the nice things about Lightroom Classic is that you can edit the panel layout and change the order that the modules appear to you. Again, Lightroom doesn't care what order you work in. It's really a personal convenience thing. So I edit the panel layout to make lens corrections the first thing. I always have it on, even if the camera I'm using embeds its corrections info directly into the raw file itself. So you're saying that the order of presentation of adjustments is not written in stone, but can be modified to suit the user? Yes, it can. You have to right-click in the border of the panels, and just in the same place that you would find things like solo mode, you will find an option to edit the panel order. And I guess from what you said a little while ago, so I guess that's why some people say that there are no corrections available for their, their camera. That's correct. In that case, the corrections are applied when the preview is created. Whether you create previews on import or choose not to do so, as soon as you open an image in the develop module, Lightroom is going to create its working preview, what they call the standard preview. And any lens corrections that you've set or that come automatically are going to be applied. Are most cameras doing that? Or I, I know my Olympus system does, and for the longest time I was wondering why can't I correct any of this? Not all camera systems do that. Canons don't embed that code as yet. I don't think Nikons do. Olympus, you're right, for sure. And I believe Fujifilm Fuji does as might. well. Yeah, okay. All right, and then what? Well, then I move to the next module in my order, which is the transform module. I use it to fix anything that's leaning or falling over. And providing it's within Lightroom's capabilities, it works really great. If the image is really beyond what Lightroom can do, I will round trip it to DxO viewpoint. But for most things, as I said, Lightroom Classic does a great job. I will also set the transform to automatically crop away areas that are no longer relevant as a result of the transformation. In that case, turn the automatic cropping function on and get the junk out of the way quickly. Okay, crap's gone. Took a while to get there. What next? Cropping? Cropping. It's a rare image that does not benefit from some cropping. And I never restrict myself to any aspect ratio based on a frame size from the 1880s. I crop to suit the image's intent, which is obviously my intent. In this way, I'm getting rid of the stuff that is not adding value to the image right up front, and I don't have to deal with it anymore. This is actually very helpful when you start to do exposure adjustments, because you're now not trying to adjust for stuff you don't have or will not use. Plus, Lightroom Classic is non-destructive, so I can always step back or modify the crop if I wish to do so later. Most important is that I work from early on with the look and aspect that I think best serves the image. But lots of folks like to crop to fit a frame. Example, say 4x5 or 8x10, which is, seems to be fairly popular. I get that, but popular rarely implies smart. When you crop a 2 to 3 image to fit 4x5, you're actively discarding one-sixth of the image on one or both, cumulatively, on the short sides. It seems nuts to me to pay for a sensor and then throw part of it away for no good reason, particularly since so few people make prints anyway. My guidance is know the aspect ratio of the sensor in your camera 
and shoot to leverage it accordingly. Okay. All right, so let's move on before you upset any more listeners. What's up after cropping? Cleanup time. I'll use the spot removal technique we talked about last time to get rid of any dust or hairs that were on the sensor. Then clean up any of the detritus that you don't want, be that power lines, trash, anything that you don't want in the final image. This can be a lot of work, so it always benefits to do your best to get things right in the camera. And, you know, after we talked last time about using the cleanup technique, I went back and I was looking for the T button that you said, you said, I think it was T. The T key. T key shows you a, a little thingy that you click and it shows you all the spots. Yes. I didn't know that existed and I was looking along the panel and it's it's not there, it's at the bottom. But it's it's really a handy thing to have because that brings the... The spot's into prominence, so you don't have to fight it. I think it's a terrific tool, but I agree with you that it's in an odd location. Considering that spot removal is something that most people want to do anyway. Okay, so then what? Well, I like to do my basic adjustments next. Uh, I always want to maximize the dynamic range, and so I will do that by using the whites, blacks, shadows, and highlight sliders. And because I tend to expose to the right, the on-screen image is initially likely to be looking a bit too bright. However, I've learned over the years that once I've got things in place, or if I'm particularly lazy that day, even when I don't, I find that the auto button may save a ton of time. If it gets me part of the way or most of the way to where I want to be, bonus. If not, well, I was going to have to do the work anyway. So a quick command or control Z to back out the step and I'm ready to move on. Once I have the dynamic range where I need it to be, I will look to the exposure as a whole. Then vibrance, clarity, and texture. These are all global adjustments, meaning that they impact the entire image. I always work to do all the global stuff before I start getting to local adjustments. Otherwise, I get stuck in a loop. And just to prove that I was paying attention, you didn't mention saturation, contrast, or dehaze. Any reason for that? Well, personally, I find these tools to be a lot like a sledgehammer. So I avoid them. Plus, I find dehaze to be more of a noise factory than a benefit. And I would rather be much more particular when it comes to the other tools. So how do you handle the contrast issue? With care. Contrast creates the illusion of sharpness, and there are places where it helps and places where it can actually hurt. So I prefer to use the Curves module and try one of the gentle curves to start, and then use the targeted adjustment tool to increase or decrease contrast in key areas of the subject. Like salt, contrast goes a long way with very little adjustment. I then jump, if needed, to the HSL module and use the targeted adjustment tool again to increase saturation or decrease it in particular colors. And then while I'm in HSL, I move to the luminance mode and do the opposite to whatever I did in saturation. So for example, if I increase saturation in the reds, I'm also going to decrease luminance in the reds. I find that doing the opposite moves with these two sliders to be very effective. 
It's very subjective, of course, but this method tends to work more often than not. But do note, these are still global level changes. If I need them to be local, I'm gonna have to do them later when I get to doing masking. And masking is always last because of course it's a local adjustment. So anything else before we tackle the local adjustments? When do you sharpen or denoise, for example? Well, I sharpen next. Obviously, you zoom into full screen, 100%. I move the sharpening slider in the detail section, the detail module, to 80. And then I hold down the Option or Alt key and drag the mask slider until only the elements that I want sharpened appear in white. Anything that's black isn't going to be sharpened. This function in Lightroom Classic is very, very good. And I almost never go outside to a different sharpening tool. I mean, I know they exist, but why create work for myself? Once I've got that mask slider where I want it to be, I'll move the sharpening slider to 120, and I'm done. Now, there are two kinds of sharpening, and I think we've talked about this in prior episodes. What I'm doing here is called the pre-sharpening. Output sharpening is something different. As for noise reduction, 98% of the time I don't go near it. If there's so much noise that the noise is the first thing I see, it's a crap image and I should have dumped it back in the beginning. Futzing with noise reduction and sharpening is an endless loop because they work against each other. So I'm almost afraid to ask. Any opinion on Adobe's recently introduced denoise? Because I gather you're not a favorite of uh, AI-based anything or noise reduction tools. I'm not enthused by them. I don't find that they actually fix anything. They replace areas of your work with unattributed and unpaid for work from other people. It really is content injection. They aren't artificial intelligence because they're not learning. They do pattern recognition and replacement of a pattern on a massive scale because they have these massive data sets. And the question I always ask is, awesome. Where'd you get the data set? Uh, and that one always goes unanswered. And Adobe makes a big deal about color grading and some, uh, well, I guess it came out some versions ago. Do you ever use it? I find that if I need to make a change for artistic reasons, the temp and tint sliders in the basic section do all that I need most all of the time. I know how to do it. I know how to color grade, I just typically don't. But if there's a particular look that I must achieve, well, then I'm going to find a lot and use that instead. Okay, so I don't know. That sounds like a whole new discussion all by itself, color grading and using LUTs. What about, about effects and the calibration? Well, calibration simply brings the image up to the current Lightroom processing level. If I'm working on an image added to the catalog a decade ago, I'll update the calibration because typically it provides for a better editing experience. But that's about the only time I'll go to calibration. If it's a new image that I've just imported, well, it's coming in with the current Lightroom version of processing anyway, so I don't need to go to calibration. And I've never found a need to go backwards. I do use the effects module, specifically the post-crop vignette, a lot but not before I do any local adjustments. It's sort of the last trick. 
While the interface changed and created some confusion, the masking tools are really superb for general work. I will use gradients and radial masks to make local adjustments a lot, as well as using a brush tool to paint where I want to make specific changes. I find that this tool, this new masking tool, saves me going to Photoshop a lot. You mentioned the vignette? Yeah, the post-crop vignette is a... I guess it's a sort of a well-known technique. I open it up, I set it to minus 11, and that's it. It's incredibly subtle. It's unapparent unless you know it's been done, but it does effectively focus the eye to the subject that you want, and I do it most all the time. And then what? Well, since I don't participate in any forms of anti-social media, <laughs> I will only export for specific purposes, and in that case, I'll export as JPEG at 100% quality, sized for the use case based on pixels, typically the long side length, and that's where the output sharpening comes in, and I'll set that to display mode, high level. Okay. That's where the output sharpening happens, only at time of export. Now, if I'm going to make a print, either on my own or I'm going to send, if I'm sending it out, I will now make a virtual copy of the image that I've edited and start fresh on it to make a print-ready version. A lot of people don't understand that the final edit for screen and the final edit for print are very different things. And I follow a very specific print process. I never make a print based on the screen edit. They're screen edits, not print edits. All right, that's, that's a whole lot of steps involved in that. Can any of them be done as a batch processing process? It depends. But if your role is the same subject with the same light, you might be able to go a long way on that first image then copy the steps and paste them on a stack of other images so they all get the same overall global treatment. When it comes to sensor dust spots, I correct it once, copy the correction and paste it on all the other images in the roll because the spots are always in the same place regardless of the lens that I've used. You've uh, mentioned this before. How does one actually do this? Okay, let's assume that you've got an image and you visualize the spots. You do your spot removal on that one image. Then go to the edit menu and click copy. What's going to happen is you're going to get a dialog pop-up that lists all the elements that can go into a correction recipe. Out of all that list, clear all the others and choose the healing option only. Now go to the roll at the bottom, select all the images where you're going to apply the correction, then back to the edit menu and click paste. Simple, finished, done. All those spots are gone for all the images in that particular role. So that's, that's presuming you're talking about sensor spots, not, not dust spots, which would probably be in different spots. Well, it is, dust spots on the sensor are always going to be in the same oh, spot. Sensor would be but the same. But let's suppose, for example, I was moving a power line in one case. And okay. It doesn't exist in another image. Right. then I would definitely not copy that. Okay. So I would tend to copy and paste the dust correction all on its own. Okay. But that doesn't mean that you can't copy any element of the adjustments in one image and then paste them into a whole bunch of others. That can be a massive time saver. 
Does that do the same thing as uh, synchronized metadata? No. Synchronized metadata basically updates all the date, time, stamp information okay. across a series of information, uh, a series of images, but it also includes other metadata information, like, for oh. example, your copyright. Okay. All right. Are there any others that you can do in a batch? I'm sure that there are numerous posts on the internet and videos on YouTube saying that you can batch everything. That's complete nonsense, but you can't force people to think things through. I mean, if you have 300 images on the, of the same bee on the same flower, you could probably batch a lot of it. But why would you have 300 or even three of the same image? Well, I guess that's an issue for another day, or maybe never. So thank you to all of you for listening. Please subscribe to be notified of a new episode, and I will stay as Gordon. And I will remain Ross until it suits me to be someone or something else. Thanks very much for listening and subscribing to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. If you shop at BNH Photo Video, please do so through the link on our homepage. It costs you nothing and pays us a small commission based on what you purchased. Feel free to post questions or comments. I read and respond to them all. Until next time, peace.